this is part two of the Candyman Killer. And if you thought last week was hard to listen to, well, you're in for a huge treat. AK, this is super savage. And by the way, I'm Z. And this is Amy. And you're here listening to Curse Words and Crayons Presents True Crime. Amy, why don't you catch us up on where we were last time in our timeline? Dean Coral had just started his sexual assault and killing spree in Houston, Texas. His teenage friend and accomplice, David Owens Brooks, is helping him accumulate victims. And he is also being paid $200 per head, which equaled about $1,300 in 2020, if we're talking inflation. This was back in the early 60s. So that takes you kind of to where we ended last week. Right now, six weeks after the double murder of Glass and Yates, who were the first victims that we talked about in last week's episode. On January 30th, 1971, Brooks and Coral encountered two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop, walking towards their parents' home. Both boys were enticed into Coral's van and driven to an apartment that Coral had rented on Magnum Road, where they were raped, tortured, strangled, and subsequently buried in a boat shed. Honestly, this is the part of this entire case that really fucks me up because his dad was really heartbroken. The boy's dad went to the police and they literally refused to help him. They stated that he knew his boys were both runaways and they were probably just sweet children who had literally been abducted as they were leaving a bowling alley. And the fact that their dad so publicly was trying to get help and the cops literally refused to, he knew something was wrong. In his gut, he knew something was wrong and nobody listened to him. And his kids were murdered. I feel like that's the really hard truth when it comes to missing people in general, whether it's kids or otherwise, is that often you're told like, oh, they're probably just gone or they've run away or they're mad. And like as a parent, I mean, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but my children have never, thankfully, been, like, abducted. I've never not known where they are. But, like, as a parent, though, you know, sometimes things happen and, like, there's, like, a gut feeling. You're like, I don't feel good about this. Or even as a person, if you don't have kids, like, sometimes you just have that feeling where, like, something is wrong. And so to be told by the authorities, like, well, they probably just ran away or they probably are off doing X, Y, Z and not being listened to and then finding out that they're dead would be just, I don't know how you would live after that. So between March and May of 1971, Coral and Brooks abducted and killed three victims, all of who were buried towards the rear of a rented boat shed. So Brooks might not have done the actual killing, but he was certainly in on it, knew all of the details and helped assist with the kidnapping. One of the three victims was 15-year-old Randall Harvey. He was last seen by his family on the afternoon of March 9th, riding his bike towards Oak Forest, where he worked part-time as a gas station attendant. Harvey was killed by a single gunshot to the head. The other two victims, 13-year-old David Hillegeist and 16-year-old Gregory Malley Winkle, were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of May 29th, 1971. Now these parents are going to frantically try to find their kids. They're reported to the police and 15-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley volunteers to spread rewards posters around town for one of the families. 
Henley pinned the rewards posters around the Heights and attempted to reassure Hildegeist's parents that there may be an innocent explanation for the boy's absence. So we talked in last episode a little bit about how we kind of felt that, yeah, there's a line between like you're being groomed or you're helping with these abductions. And then for like this, for Henley to know all of this information and still be like, there's probably a really decent explanation for this is major yuck for me. Spoiler alert, the reason why Amy feels like that is because Elmer Wayne Henley actually becomes one of Dean Corll's teenage accomplices that helps him corral teenage male victims. So for him to be friends with one of the boys and one of the boys' families enough to help them spread out reward posters around town is rude. And he should apologize. 100%. There there are a lot of I'm sorry notes that need to be written in this situation. On August 17th, 1971, Coral and Brooks encountered a 17-year-old acquaintance of Brooks named Reuben Watson Haney walking home from a movie theater in Houston. Brooks persuaded Haney to attend a party at Coral's house, and he agreed and was taken to Coral's home where he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. Something that you'll also notice as we go through this timeline is a lot of these boys are connected. So a lot of these boys are either friends of other people or they know one of the of the teenage accomplices through friends of somebody else. So there's a lot of networking that kind of is happening to acquire these victims, whether Brooks and Henley are aware that they're doing those things or just kind of subsequently, these are my friends, you're hanging out with me, and and then this kind of happens and you get murdered. In September 1971, Coral moves to another apartment in the Heights, and Brooks later stated that he assisted Coral in the abduction and murder of two kids during the time that he resided at this address, including one who was killed just before Wayne Henley came into the picture. In his confession, Brooks stated that they were killed, that these kids were killed immediately prior to Henley's involvement in the murders, and they were abducted from the Heights and kept alive for approximately four days before their murder. The identity of both of these two victims remain unknown. And during some of the confessions from Henley and Brooks, they state, which is traumatizing, but they state that the longer that Coral keeps somebody alive is because he really likes them. So the more that they excite Coral, the more that they are fun victims for him, the longer that he tortures and rapes these boys before he kills them. Do you know what the longest was that he kept a victim? Three or four days. So these boys were kept for four days. I feel like these are the, I feel four days is the longest. I feel like there was another boy that it was three days and Henley was like, yeah, Coral kept him along for so long because Coral really liked that boy. Just chilling. Disgusting. In the winter of 1971, Brooks introduced Henley to Coral. Henley likely was lured to Coral's address as an intended victim. However, Coral evidently decided that he would make a good accomplice and offered him the same fee, $200 for any boy he could lure into his apartment, informing Henley that he was involved in a white slavery ring operating in Dallas. So in episode one, I talked a little bit about how he had kind of designed this storyline of being a part of this ring where he's collecting these boys to pass on to other people and you know well we'll keep going remember how earlier 
I spoiled for everybody that Elmer Wayne Henley was helping to pass out posters for family. So again, this kind of reads to the connection of these boys to other victims, to other accomplices. So he had been involved in helping find boys that had been murdered by Quarrel. So whether he knew that at this point that like, oh, these boys had been taken by Quarrel or he finds out later. I know those boys were never found. So it's hard to say. So Henley later stated that for several months, he ignored Quarrel's offer. In early 1972, he decided to accept the offer because his family really needed money. Henley said that the first abduction he participated in was in February of 1972. How fucking sad is it that you're like, listen, my family's really hurting for money, so I'm going to take money for you so that you can abduct children. I mean, he at this point did not know that Coral was killing these kids. That's still... I don't know that that's... I mean, it is, It's. I guess, like, well, they're just... It doesn't make it better. No. It doesn't make it better. I'm just saying, if I can't afford to eat or live, lots of times people do things that they are very ashamed of in order to be able to be a human. 100%. And that's what I'm saying is, like, how fucking sad is it that he is like, listen, my family doesn't have any money. And so in order for my mom, dad, sister, brother, whatever, like my family to eat or to keep lights on in our house, I need this money to do those things. Like, it's not like, oh, I really need these cool new pair of shoes. So I'm going to be a piece of garbage human and I'm going to sell these boys into slavery. But it's like, I need this money to survive. And you've been kind of pressuring me to be a part of this. And I'm going to take you up on your offer, which mm-hmm. is like devastating. It's sad. Like, yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. So if Henley's statement is true, the victim was abducted from the Heights in February or early March of 1972. And in the statement that Henley gave the police following his arrest, he stated that he and Coral picked up a boy and lured him into Coral's home on the promise of smoking some marijuana with them. So like Zia said a couple of times, like when he had the candy store, this was like the cool thing. Like, look at him, how cool he is. And we can smoke some pot and we can just hang out. So they've kind of convinced this kid that here we go. We're going to do this. You know, we're going to go and smoke some pot together. So once they get to Coral's place, Henley cuffed his own hands behind his back to trick the other kid into doing the same thing. So where this plan came from, I'm not entirely sure, It just gets like more sinister and more sinister. Um, So Henley had hidden the key on himself for his own set. So he was able to set himself free. Uh, Then Henley left the, the other boy alone with Coral, believing he was going to be sold into a sexual slavery ring. To this day, we don't know who the boy was. We don't know if his remains have ever been found because his actual identity was never released. A month later, on March 24th, 1972, Henley, Brooks, and Coral encountered an 18-year-old acquaintance of Henley's named Frank Aguire, leaving his job at a restaurant that he worked at on Yale Street. Henley called him over to Coral's van, and they invited him to come and drink beer and smoke pot with the trio at Coral's apartment. Which is their thing now. That's what they're going to do for all these kids. They are the, they're, they're the marijuana, beer, drinking, hangout people, right? That's how they're going to get him back there. And Henley seems to have just dove headfirst into this. And at, at this point going forward, I no longer feel bad for him because he should have 200, what, 400 
he should have at least six hundred dollars so that's three and a half grand that's over three and a half grand by today's money standards that should be enough to get him out of that situation at least for a little bit you get what i'm saying like i can understand to a certain point that you have to do some really terrible things to live to survive to be a human being yeah but after you have acquired said money you just keep going you're now you're in on it right so once they get back to coral's home coral pounces on aguire and handcuffs him behind his hands behind his back henley later claimed that he did not know if coral's true intention was to murder him or what his intentions were but he had this is henley's friend so he was unaware like what the intentions were so there's still clearly some like muddy waters between are we just gonna hang out or are we gonna make this person part of your like weird sex ring i don't believe that i don't believe that i believe he knew that he was going to be part of the weird sex ring at that time he didn't know maybe that they were he was going to be tied up to a torture ward and like murdered um after being raped and everything like that he knew you can this is like the sixth kid why are you gonna lure your friend lure eddie down the street who fucked you over that one time that you tried to buy his bike from him and he made you pay double i not that you need to fuck over people that do bad things to you don't stoop yourself down but it also is so just mind-blowing it would be like me being me saying amy you know what come with me to the circus and then I leave you at the circus knowing that I don't know they were going to transfer you to Honduras or whatever it is they wanted to transfer you for there just seems to be a lot of blur between like what is me being desperate for money what part of me is like kind of liking that this is happening for whatever reason like whether it's my brain or anything else but in a 2010 interview he claimed to have attempted to persuade Coral not to assault and kill Aguirre once Coral and Brooks had bound and gagged him. However, Coral refused, informing Henley that he had raped, tortured, and killed the previous victim he had assisted in abducting, and that he intended to do the same with Aguirre. But then Henley goes with Brooks and Coral to bury the body, so obviously he knows something is amiss <laughs> we're burying and now it. he's fine with it because he buried the body so he's like oh that sucks you're gonna kill my friend you killed those other dudes that i brought to your house wow 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 okay i'm still gonna take that 200 dollars ahead and yeah you know what i'm gonna go and i'm gonna take one for the team and help bury my fucking friend's body the friend that i lured to you and pretended like i mean and maybe He's still younger. You're probably right to give him a little bit of the benefit of a doubt and say maybe he didn't know. In your gut, at that point in time, you had to have known. He told you what he was doing. He literally said, yo, I'm selling these kids off in a sex ring. So then you're still going to take your friends over to his house to get fucked up? Which, whatever, that sounds like a fun afternoon. If somebody's like, hey, Suzette, do you want to come over to my house for marijuana and beers? My question would be like, who's going to watch my child? That'd be (laughs) it, right? I'd be like, sure, let me put on a bra. Where are my shoes? Where are my keys? I'll be there in five minutes, (laughs) right? Jokes aside, like, he had to have known that this was not a good person to bring his friends around he coral literally told him yo i'm going to sell your friends that you give me into a sex ring right and if your only goal truly is like listen my family's poor and like we need a lot of money then i'm not going to be hanging out with you on a regular basis either 
if I have decided to do some sort of nefarious act for you because I really need money, I'm probably not going to then want to like hang out later, like want to come over and watch movies. No, because I don't think you're a good person and I'm just doing this because I need money to live or whatever. But now he knows, he knows what's happening now for sure, for sure, because he's being told. Exactly. One month later, on April 20th, 1972, Elmer Wayne Henley assisted Coral and Brooks in the abduction of another teenage boy, this time 17-year-old Mark Scott. Scott knew Henley and Brooks. They were friendly. And they grabbed him, but he completely fought against them. So the whole time, he's, like, furiously fighting against them. He even tried to straight-up stab them with a knife. Then Henley pulled out a pistol obviously threatening to shoot Scott and Brooks stated that Scott just gave up at that point. Mark Scott was tied to the torture board and suffered the same hand as Frank had earlier. He was raped, tortured, strangled, and he was buried at the High Island Beach. And at this point, I don't think that we've talked about this torture board. And I really... I don't want to. (laughs) Do we even really want to talk about this torture board? I didn't look super hard into it because I I honestly could not stomach it. From what I gather, it's essentially like it's a fucking torture board. It's a board that Coral tied his victims to where he tormented them. If you want to know more, if that's not enough for your imagination, because that's enough for my imagination. That's when I stopped. I was like, that's don't need to know the gory, gory, gory details. Um, But you could Google it. And a bunch of images will come up and you can find a lot of information on this torture report. Yeah, I already have a hard enough time closing my eyes while we're talking about this case. So I think torture board allows us to all have the information we need. Exactly. I'm just doing my best to tell the story, but also maybe spare uh, some of the worst details if and when that is possible. And I feel like this torture board, your brain does it enough. I don't need to. For June 22nd, Henley assisted Coral and Brooks in the abduction and murder of two other boys named Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. In Brooks' confession, he stated that both boys were tied to Coral's bed. And after their torture and rape, Henley manually strangled Billy, yelled at Johnny, and Actually ended up shooting Johnny in the forehead, but that didn't kill him. Johnny ended up pleading with Henley before he was strangled. But regardless, Henley strangled them. Both of them were buried at High Island Beach. And you'll see going forward that Henley becomes a very active participant in this. He not only is helping abduct or kidnap these teenagers around town, but he is also, he's strangling them. He's shooting them. He is part of the murder process. I did not see a case where he stated or Brooks stated that either one of them was in on the rapes or the sexual torment, but Henley did help torture these victims. Like he, at this point, in my humble opinion, he is just as guilty as Coral. Just because you didn't put your penis in him does not now make you innocent of these heinous fucking murders, right? I mean, an accomplice is an accomplice. And whether you stood back and just watched and took notes or whether you're participating, I feel like you're just as guilty. There's no right is right and wrong is wrong. And if you're seeing something that shouldn't be happening and you're continuing to let it happen, you're 
just as guilty. Super shortly after, the trio lured a 19-year-old. This 19-year-old's name was also Billy. Um, I mean, I guess lots of these kids are going to have the same the same name. That makes sense uh, because there's like, yeah, there's oh, there's a ton of them. But super shortly after, the trio lured a 19-year-old named Billy Reidinger to the house. Billy was tied up to the plywood board. This is the torture board. He was tortured and abused by Coral. Brooks later claimed he persuade Coral to let Billy be released. And the youth was actually allowed to leave the residence. Which, wow. I mean, that's crazy. He tormented him and then just let him leave. And do we ever hear about him again? No. How bizarre. I mean, if I guess if there's always the chance that if that happened to you, you're not going to say, like, you're just going to go and just thank, be thankful that you're released. But that's, wow. Well, and it's the 50s and this is a homosexual encounter. Right. So this is, well, it's not the 50s anymore. Now it's the 70s. But Lord. this is still not, this is still not okay. It might be something that he is not comfortable telling people happened to him. Maybe it's too traumatizing. And um, I actually, I'm going to make a note and I'm going to look more into him. So I'm going to highlight his name. And then maybe on our next episode, I will come back and have a little bit more information because during my research, I did not see that. But also maybe he did. And that's just not something I came across. And then just to round out the summer, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman was last seen leaving a party held in the Heights shortly before midnight on July 19th. He was savagely blundered with a blunt instrument to the chest before he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. Which I think that I would rather get bludgeoned in the chest than tortured and raped. I know we're not picking one, but if we had to pick one... I think I, I think that would be my pick. Both are a no thank you for me, but I agree. I feel like that sounds like it was quicker than what some of these other boys went through. Just this whole thing is awful. This whole case is terrible. On August 21st, a 19-year-old named Roy Bunton was abducted while walking to his job at a Houston shoe store. He was gagged with a towel. His mouth was bound with tape, and he was shot twice in the head and buried in the boat shed. The only reason they know that these last two boys, they have only been identified as victims in 2011. So Brooks or Henley, they did not, they didn't name either of these boys during their confession, probably because at this point, they don't even know these boys' names. I know they were under a financial strain when they first started helping Coral, which again, I can I cannot excuse, but okay, we've chatted about that. And Brooks has literally been groomed since the age of 12 mm-hmm. from Coral. So I'm doing my best to keep that in mind, but it just seems Henley is really enjoying it. And Brooks must at some point also be enjoying some part of this as well, because they're actively very much a part of the killing and burial process, as well as obviously uh, helping abduct these kids for coral. It's, It's just, yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And from now forward, it seems that they are in this frenzy. I also wonder too, like, what was it about those two boys? What was it about Brooks and Henley that he was like, nope, you guys are gonna help me and you're not just becoming victims. Like, was it their relationship prior? Was it the fact that Brooks knew Henley? Like, what 
was it? Because there's a lot of other boys that they abducted and murdered that were friends of theirs or acquaintances or people that they knew. It just seems just interesting to me. I don't know. So they take September off, it seems. So they've taken a break. It's, you know, fall break for them. Uh, then on October 2nd, 1972, Henley and Brooks encountered two Heights teenagers named Wally J. Simino and Richard Hembry. Simino and Hembry were enticed into Brooks's Corvette, which remember he had been given as like a silence gift at the very beginning of the kind of victim spree and driven to quarrels. That evening, Simino is known to have phoned his mother's home and to have shouted the word mama into the receiver before the connection was terminated. That makes my heart break. <laughs> and that makes me cry. Because can you imagine being that boy's mother and that is the call? You know, that's the last call that you've gotten. That. The following morning, Hembry was accidentally shot in the mouth by Henley. I can understand how you accidentally shoot somebody like it happens it's one of those things but in this case should we really even call it an accident like if your intention all along was to murder or to get rid of these boys is that really an accident it's kind of like with the lydia sherman case we covered a few weeks ago where it was like she accidentally poisoned her husband but she had been poisoning him all along so how is that really an accident? But nonetheless, he said it was an accident. Several hours later, both boys were strangled to death and subsequently buried in a common grave inside the boat shed, directly above the bodies of James Glass and Danny Yates. So this boat shed is basically where they're dumping all of these remains and they're leaving everything there. And at this point, I mean, it's getting pretty full. And I believe that he purchased like a second stall, like next to his own, like because it was there was nowhere else for them to go, which is just That's ridiculous. A lot of dead bodies. Yeah. And like, how is nobody noticing it? Like that, I Does feel like smell? smell and like, well, from, and I think we talk about this a little bit later when we get into like the uncovering of the bodies, but like they were using like lye and other things to kind of help cover That's up right. the smell. But even still, I mean, there's, that can only do so much that it's, it's not fail proof, you know? So insane to me. Sometime the following month, an 18 year old Oak Forest boy known to both Coral and Henley named Willard Branch disappeared while hitchhiking from Mount Pleasant to Houston. His gagged and emasculated body was buried in the boat shed. On November 15th, a 19-year-old Heights boy named Richard Kepner disappeared on his way to a phone booth. Kepner was strangled and buried at the High Island Beach. In January of 1973, Coral killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Lyles was known to both Coral and Brooks. There are so many similarities to people that are like known to these Mm -hmm. and at this point it's just I don't know if that like makes it worse for me but I just how were there no rumors circulating around mm -hmm. nobody was like hey it seems as if when people go and hang out with this trio that they disappear that's weird N nobody's gonna talk about that that's it's whatever no big deal so again <clears throat> there's another break no victims were killed between February 1st and June 4th of 1973 Coral was known to have suffered from hydrocele at this point, which may have contributed to this period of inactivity. If you don't know what that is, don't worry, we've looked it up. Hydrocele is a fluid-filled sac around a testicle, and it's common in newborns, but older men can develop it due to inflammation or injury. So this kind of falls along with 
I would say, grossly enough, the injury portion of this. Like, there's a lot of really violent things happening, and they deal a lot with his genitals. So I'm sure... I really hope that his penis hurt. I really hope that this was extremely painful. I really hope that every time he looked down at his dick, he was like, ouch. You know, like, I just, I really... No, I really hope that this was awful for him. Um, And yeah, I I agree. I think that this is the only reason that he, I think he definitely developed it due to inflammation or injury from his victims fighting back as he is, he's like sexually taking advantage of them before he kills them. 24 total victims in in all, I think, is around there. I mean, that may not be. 28, I thought. It's a lot, way more, 28 more than it there should have been. So Henley had also temporarily moved away to Mount Pleasant and an apparent effort to distance himself from Coral around the exact same time. So it could have been a combination of the injury and a combination of Henley moving that made him kind of put a pause on what he was doing. Well, Henley was also at this point just as into it as Coral is. So I think Henley was not only finding these victims for Coral to get money, but Henley was also finding these victims for himself as well. He's like, yeah. (laughs) So if he's out of the picture to try to better himself, which I mean, good, good for you, I guess. I can't say that because you're a shit person, but like, eh, okay. So you move away to, to try to distance yourself. But if he, again, I mean, these are like two serial killers going at it together at this point. Now there's only one and his testicles are hurt. He's had four months to heal gross. And on June 4th, Henley and Coral abducted a 15 year old boy named William Ray Lawrence. He was last seen by his father after three days of abuse and torture, Lawrence was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. So if you remember from last episode, the boys that were kept longer were because those were boys that Coral really liked, which breaks my heart more than the ones that were killed quickly. I just feel like that's horrible. Less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. On July 6, 1973, Henley began attending classes at the Coaches Driving School in Bel Air, where he became acquainted with a 15-year-old named Homer Louise Garcia. The following day, Garcia phoned his mother to say he was spending the night at a friend's. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Coral's bathtub before he was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Five days later, on July 12th, 17-year-old John Sellers of Orange County was bound, shot to death, and buried at High Island Beach. Now, Z, do you know the answer to this question? So we have kind of two burial spots, High Island Beach and Lake Sam Rayburn. Do you know how far they are from each other? They're about two hours and ten minutes away. One's basically near the Louisiana border, and then Highland Beach is on the Gulf. They're not close. And Sam Highland Beach is relatively close to Houston. Uh, Sam Rayburn, it is not, though. That is probably about a two-hour drive for him. That, I just, look, if I need to get rid rid of a body, it's not going to be two hours from where I live. That's too far to have a dead body in my car. It's not Mm -hmm. great. And then the smell, just the whole, ugh, it's a no. Five days later, on July 12th, 17-year-old John Sellers of Orange County was bound and shot to death and buried at High Island Beach. 
In July 1973, after Brooks married his pregnant fiance, which how is he having time to date outside of all of these things, let alone get somebody pregnant and become engaged to them? But now we have this poor person who's pregnant and involved in this, whether they're aware or not. But Henley is now temporarily Coral's sole producer of victims. So at this point, Brooks steps away and Henley becomes kind of like the main procurer of people. Assisting in the abduction and murder of three Heights kids between July 19th and July 25th. Henley claimed that these three were the only ones that happened where Brooks was not a participant since he had joined the trio. So up until this point, all three of them had been involved. They took a break when Henley moved away. And then when Brooks left, and it seems to me like of the three, he's maybe the less invested, which gross no matter what but he doesn't seem to be as invested so henley and coral kind of continued without him after um after that long break before one of the three victims was 15 year old michael bouch brother of the previous victim billy bouch who was last seen by his family on july 19th on his way to get a haircut he was strangled and buried at lake sam rayburn the other two victims charles cobble and marty ray jones were abducted together on the afternoon of july 25th Henley himself later buried both boys' bodies in the boat shed. So now it appears that Henley is becoming more involved in not only just the abduction and the murder, but also the disposal of bodies, which I guess timeline chronologically makes sense, but still I wonder if Henley had his own victims. I wonder if all the victims that they found and contributed to Dean Coral are Dean Quarles' victims. I wonder if Henley also had a stash of bodies somewhere, maybe, because Brooks wouldn't have known at this point. I just feel, yeah, I feel like there could be more. More on Coral's end, because we don't know Coral's side, but also more more for Henley, I think. Yeah, I could see it. Well, and if he knows that there's a place to dispose of the bodies, like, who's to say he's not just killing people on his own? I mean, it seems like this is like a group effort. So, but if you know where you can store a body and you're not, you haven't been caught yet, and you're, this has become like something you really need to do. On August 3rd, 1973, Coral killed his last victim, a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Stanton Dramala. Dramala was abducted by Brooks and Coral while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Lamar Drive upon the pretense of collecting empty glass bottles to resell. Now, remember, at this point in time, people would pick up bottles and they could resell them for, you know, change. And so this was a big thing that kids kind of did in this point in time. At Coral's home, Dramala was tied to Coral's torture board, raped, tortured, and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. And that brings us to his final victim. So, yes, this is Coral's final victim, which, yay. Again, this is another natural stopping point for us. We will be back for a third and final episode. Um, And we have stomached through the entire murder chat, basically, in one episode this was a very we didn't put in a lot of details about the killing we we did not make any of us sit through that 
there are tons of great places that you can give get more information. There's books, there's all sorts of podcasts. I specifically read The Man with the Candy, and that one I, I would totally recommend. It it does go into a lot more of the details if you're ready to stomach that. But let's go over some of our closing thoughts before we come back for next time. At this time, the killing spree was the worst case of serial murder in terms of number of victims in the United States because Coral and the trio exceeded 25 murders, which that was Juan Corona. He had killed 25 people in California in 1971. And this was only surpassed by John Wayne Gacy in 1978. And he mm-hmm. murdered 33 boys and young men. We did chat. Who knows? Coral could possibly have more victims that we just, we don't know about. He's not around to tell his story. Um, and who knows if Henley and Brooks were in on all that information. Some have said that his last murder, Coral's last murder was in 1973. John Wayne Gacy was caught in 1978. So some people say that there was like influence there, like based on like the news. Um, But he was, John Wayne Gacy was in Chicago and these murders happened in Texas. So I don't know. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that there wasn't like news coverage. So Gacy said that he was influenced by Dean Quarles killing spree. He stated that actually that it, it, he was, I mean, he was going to kill people probably too. I really think that bad people, there are bad humans out there. Some people they're born bad. And John Wayne Gacy was one of those people, too. He was just, he was born a bad person. Um, so that that was his fate. He was going to kill people regardless, I think. But, yeah, I, I, the Coral being caught right around the time that Gacy is getting these ideas in his head. Yeah, yeah. not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. Yeah. So Coral was also moving around Houston a lot at this time. There were at least five or six different addresses that I distinctly remember reading that he circulated to between 1970 and 1973. I can only assume that this was to keep his victim pool fresh. Or what do you think? Why do you think he would be moving five or six times in three years? That's a lot. That's a lot of times to pack up your stuff. I just can't imagine that you have a very steady income if you're just going to murdering too. Like there could be some like eviction purposes. But also what I find so interesting is that a lot of their victims were connected in some way. So it's like, yes, you're still going around and around, but there's still so many of them that were like, oh, this was so-and-so's friend or he was an acquaintance. It seems like they would always go back to the familiar and like, so maybe some of these were kind you know, hitchhikers or people that were on their bike or whatever. But it's always like, well, if we go back here, we know that there's at least somebody that we can lure in, which is gross. You know how we talked about the father of Donald and Jerry Waldrop and he he was just he was very distraught and the police told him that his boys were runaways told him get out of my face your kids they ran away deal with it he had actually informed the police that an acquaintance had observed Coral bearing what appeared to be bodies in his boat shed and the police performed a search around the boat shed but dismissed this as a hoax the smell Amy could they not smell that I'm so confused But also, like, where did you go around the boat shed? Like, there's, I'm, obviously, some of these boys were buried deep into the boat shed. But 
some of them were buried on top of each other. So like they could have been that deep. Like how deep of a hole can you dig? Like that takes time. And I'm sure they weren't bringing in backhoes doing that. Like it was probably they were just digging. And so I don't, I want to know who was in charge of that investigation because I don't think they should be in charge of anything else anymore ever. Like that's just so crazy to me. Which is why in this case, a lot of people get very upset with the Houston Police Department because they didn't do their job and they didn't. They they did not do their job well. During the summer, this is a big what the fuck. During the summer of 1972, Henley knocked Brooks unconscious as he entered Coral's house. Coral tied Brooks up to his bed and assaulted him repeatedly. You know what I'm just now putting together? This is around the same time. Not the same time, but this is probably when he's getting his girlfriend pregnant. You know? So maybe that's also... And he's leaving and this is like a... I mean, you know, rape is is an assertion of dominance and like it's about power. And this is like, listen, I'm in charge and it doesn't matter. See, you're you're going that way with it. Whereas I'm thinking... This is why Brooks decided ultimately to uh, step away. Oh, so you are thinking it was before and then he was like, I'm done with this. I'm leaving and I'm going to like start a regular life. No, I think that the assault is what ultimately led to him wanting. I don't know when his girlfriend was pregnant or if it was around that time, whatever. But I think that this is ultimately when he makes the decision for himself that he needs to get out of it, um, out of this trio. And in the last couple of murders, you see he was home with his pregnant wife so or fiance right. or whatever the case may be. So this might have it was fine for Coral. It was fine for Brooks to get Coral boys to do this, too. It was fine for Brooks. I don't know if he watched Coral, but it was fine for Brooks to watch Coral. It was fine for him to kill people. It was fine for him to help bury their bodies. It was not fine for any of those things to be happening to him. Well, and if you remember at the beginning when he was first grooming Brooks, he would give him money to let him assault him. Oh, yeah. And then I wonder if it was like, okay, this is purely a business transaction at this point. And then it just, oh, my word. Uh, but I I just thought that one was yeah. that's awful. And this guy is twice as old as him. So he probably sees him as some sort of a father figure too. It's just this whole and he's been with him since he's twelve. At this point he's like what, fifteen, sixteen? Mm, probably sick probably closer to like sixteen to eighteen ish, I would say. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's his whole adolescence. Not not his whole adolescence, but that's a major chunk of the years in which you are becoming yourself. But some pretty formative years, yes. Like, these are some really important times. Altogether, at least 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November. Five were buried at the Highland Island Beach and five inside the boat shed. It's not sad. I'm not going to say it's sad. That's six months. It's a shame for sure. 100%. That's not what I'm saying. It's not sad. It is a shame for the victims and the families that there was not like, I don't know. I feel like if I was in this situation, I would want to know why, like what happened and why. And then, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about what happens to him next. But also like, 
what made it speed up? Was it just the access of victims? Was it that he, his like mental illness was getting worse? Like what caused the increase in such a short period of time? What caused the different locations two hours away from each other? There's a lot and like nobody will know those full answers because nobody to ask. Serial killers do that though. True, that's true. Because So you'll see in the beginning, of like if you're if you're like looking at serial killer A and it's a diagram, right? You'll see at the beginning that serial killer A will have a long cooling off period. So right. he'll kill, he or she will kill somebody. They will kill someone. They will wait like six months. They'll do it again. And then if they continue to along that path before they're caught, you'll see, oh, first it was six months. Now it's four months. Now it's three months now they've gotten away with this so much it's it's like sneaking a cookie you know oh i or whatever like oh i snuck this you know i could do it again it's not hard um and so you'll see that they start like these murders don't fulfill them in the same way um and so then they 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 become frenzied and that's ultimately when a lot of these serial killers get caught because now they're no longer they're no longer being careful about their victims. They're no longer covering up their tracks as much. It is all about the kills at that point. And I think we can both admit that it's a little bit, a little bit more serious than stealing a cookie. I don't know. Don't steal my fucking cookies. <laughs> I've never had a cookie at your house. So maybe, maybe it is. I don't really like cookies though. So it's not. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, cool. I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> So this wraps up our second episode. Come back and join us when we talk about our final installment of this case, where we're going to talk about how this douche canoe bites it. And I have to say, I'm I'm relishing in the fact that the end is near and there's going to be at least a slight bit of justice. Um, join us on Patreon, on Instagram, curse words and crayons. Email us your case suggestions, curse words and crayons at gmail.com. And have a happy and haunted week. We will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.